Before today's episode, we acknowledge the Yagara people and the Turbal people as the traditional custodians of Mianjin, Brisbane, the lands on which this podcast was recorded. This podcast contains descriptions of domestic and family violence that listeners may find confronting, challenging or triggering. Audience discretion is advised. Domestic violence is a national crisis. Targeting the most likely domestic violence murderers. Domestic violence protocols and culture will be put under the microscope. Queensland's silent killer. On average, one woman a week and one man a month is killed by a current or former partner. Here's a sobering statistic. There are more than 100,000 cases of domestic violence in Queensland every year. Welcome to Behind the Doors of Domestic Violence, presented by the Queensland Police Service. My name's Dean Cooper and I'll be the host of this podcast series. I'm a facilitator of a men's behavioural change program working to change the belief systems of men who perpetrate violence. I also work with Griffith University's Make Bystander program to empower a community of bystanders to be someone who does something about domestic and family violence in our community. In this episode, we'll be speaking to Dr. Brian Sullivan, who has extensive experience working with perpetrators of violence within group programs, aiming to rehabilitate people who use violence in their relationships. And it will be two men having a conversation about men's violence, which is the predominant issue here. I think 25 years ago when I started my doctorate, Dean, was when I first got into domestic and family violence. Up until then, I was a school teacher. I became a school counsellor. And through my PhD, I entered the academic space and have worked at a number of universities, Um, got to the point where I wanted to get back into practice, have now started my own training and consultancy called Sakura, where I do training in domestic and family violence intervention. I owe my work and any knowledge I've gained in this work largely, I'm grateful to the women who've shoulders or you know, I'm standing on really because I wouldn't be doing this work without incredible activists and advocates who've taught me so much. And, you know, sometimes for a man to come in this space, people think, oh, look, this guy's good. He's working against men's violence when women have been doing it far longer than we have. And I'm riding on their coattails in some ways. So I always want to acknowledge, you know, these strong, awesome women who've taught me so much in working in this space, Dean. I think that's a really important acknowledgement to make, particularly also as a man in this space, that it's really easy to get that public acclaim as a male speaking about this. But you're 100% right that um, we're able to have these conversations and we're able able to have the courage to delve into parts of male culture, which previously nobody ever entered, off the back of women's leadership in this space. What is the mindset of someone who's using abusive behaviours in the home? Well, that's the $64 million question, I think, (laughs) their mindset. And they're vastly different backgrounds to the men that come to the groups. Diversity galore in terms of ethnicities, cultures, religions, education background, socioeconomic status. But one thing I would say all the men I work with share, and that's male culture, particular kind of male culture which places men at the top of the chain, if you like, the top of the pyramid, and women come further down that chain. I don't even know if they're second. I think they're probably further down there. So they're at least second-class citizens. They're often less than human. They're objects, primarily sexual objects for these men. And there's a belief I see played out in groups as I hear men speak. And this is what the work is really, challenging these beliefs, identifying the beliefs, challenging that belief and unpacking it, pulling it apart, seeing what this belief leads to and seeing what 
changing that belief leads to. So the belief I'm dealing with basically that is man's superiority, man's entitlement to women, man's privileges over women and children, that a man has to have, if he's going to be a real man, power and control over women and children. And that means he has a right to get what he wants, when he wants, where he wants, how he wants from her. And if she's not forthcoming, if she's not giving him what he demands, then he has a right to get adversarial, aggressive, to force that woman to comply with his regulations, if you like, with his rules for the relationship. And that can be punishment, that can be payback, it can be revenge, it can be letting her know who's the boss. And that means, you know, the whole intimidation, the whole threat, the whole coercive control over her life, her identity. Uh, don't talk to me about it because it's your car. Yeah, no. The mindset is a mindset which I believe men have, but strangely in group they try to camouflage and cover that up through their denial through their minimization through their blaming of her blaming of police blaming the system blaming alcohol and making excuses for it and i always believe that gee when i try to make excuses or blame someone else or deny that i've done something wrong or i try to minimize it it kind of means i'm covering up something i know i've done wrong so I believe there's a part of these men, a deep part, and that's the part we have to access and connect with, I think, in the facilitation work. That is that deep down they know what they're doing is harmful, it's wrong, and it's damaging to those that they purportedly love. The whole thing that they share is a belief system that allows them to use that violence. And can you speak to a little bit about where that belief system comes from and how do they get to the point of having this sort of shared belief that puts them in a position of power and allows them to do these horrible things? I think the, the belief system develops over time from a number of sources. I think many of these men themselves have been traumatised by men's violence themselves when they were little boys at home they were traumatized by their father their stepfather or mum's live-in boyfriend's violence towards their mother and towards them the children in the family and that can be a social learning that boys see men acting like this and somehow gain the belief that to be a man is to be scary towards women and children it is to be dominant and loud, aggressive. So that social learning is certainly part of it. Some people have said that, you know, men, because they have testosterone, that's part of this violence. So they look at it as a biological sort of causality. But I don't believe that. I think what we're dealing with here is not so much testosterone, but it's more misogyny. It's a belief system that men have from their backgrounds, from hanging out with mates who would share that belief system that women are there for men's purposes. I think, you know, certainly the men I've worked with, a majority would have problematic pornography use. So I think there's a part that pornography plays in sex education and relationship education, which we don't touch on very much. We don't sort of discuss that very much. It's certainly something 
I really want to bring up in men's groups and talk about the effect that porn has on men's belief systems and men's way of relating to women and then mixing and associating with other men who believe that same damaging way of working and dealing with women. Yeah, I, I like the speaking to the, the notion of it's helped them get what they want, which really brings it to, to my experience of when I've worked with men who have used violence, largely when I say, what do you want from your relationship? They say the white picket fence life. Yet to meet a man that walks into the room and says, I love the fact I've got three DVOs with multiple partners, there's children I can't see, scared to be in the same room as me. It's like power and control is not something they want, but it's something that they get through what they're doing. And I'm really interested to hear from your perspective around when they're using horrible violence, what are they telling themselves to make it okay that they do it? How do they justify it? I think they justify it by certainly objectifying her. And we know this from the military and from wartime experiences, that if you dehumanise, depersonalise the enemy by calling them awful names or less than human names, it's easier to be violent towards them. So I do an exercise in group where we'll get them, when I say I, I'm talking about me and my co-facilitators, where we get men to list the horrible words and phrases and terminology that they call their partners I don't like men swearing in group. I think the easiest and quickest thing they can change and be confident they can change is their language for two hours a week. So I'll ask men, I know it's probably going to be difficult for you. I know you swear at work, you swear at home, you swear everywhere, I'm sure, maybe the most of you. But for these two hours of the week where we're focusing on change, going to challenge you to change your language. So I don't want to hear F-bombs, don't want to hear C-bombs, don't want to hear you use disrespectful language to women and children for the next two hours. So we want you to call your partner by her name. And even that's difficult for a lot of men. You know, they call her the old lady, the, the wife, the psycho bitch, I've heard men say. But during this exercise, we put it up on a whiteboard. All the horrible terminology, words, phrases they use, they'll put the C word up, they'll put whore and slut and all the rest of it. And we look at that and, you know, there's a kind of a solemn feeling comes over the group because I'll ask them, what do you think when you look at that language on the board? And this is what we're calling women who we supposedly love or wanted to have a relationship with at least sometime in our life. And, you know, there's a, a sense of shame and a sense of disgust, I think. Then I'll proceed on to what's the intention behind that? Why would you call someone you love these horrible terms? And, you know, men will say, because I have to assert myself as the boss, I've got to get what I want. I need to show her that she's wrong and I'm right and I'm big and powerful and she's got to be small and diminished in this relationship. But one man said to me once, and it sort of stuck with me, and I think it encapsulates the whole intentionality behind why men call women these horrible names. And it gives a glimpse, I think, into the belief system too that in terms of the relationship, a relationship, and this is the man's language, is about breaking her down. And they were chilling words to me to think that an intimate relationship in these men's minds is about breaking her down so that she becomes under my thumb, under my boot, under my control. She's my possession. She's not a separate person in her own right. She doesn't have her own choices or her own identity or her own life. She's actually part of me.
when they're going home and, and they're using violence and it's laid yeah. out on the board in front of them in the room and yeah. they see these horrible effects of what yeah. they're doing, what are yeah. some of the things when they justify, minimise, what do they say? Well, I think, I think what they have to do because, you know, we've all seen this when we've worked with men is the incredible image management that's going on. Yeah. And the image management is double-sided. It's not only about portraying themselves as the good guy, mm-hmm. portraying themselves as the victim. He has to portray her as the problem. I used to think when I heard men speak about women where I worked, that all the women in the city were either nuts, sluts, witches or bitches. Mm. That was the way they portrayed them. So I used to think men had some kind of psychiatric training because they'd be diagnosing their partners. Mm. I'd say to them, have you got a psychiatric degree, mate? You know? Oh, she's schizophrenic. She's bipolar. So she goes off ahead. She needs me to control her. So there's this idea that he's the good guy. She's portrayed as the the problem. And, you know, so men will often put women down, these men, put them down in terms of who they are as women. So they'll attack their looks, their physicality. They'll attack them as mothers, bad mothers, bad partners, bad lovers. And so I worked with one man, this was in the United States, and I won't get too graphic. He physically assaulted her, grabbed her by the hair and was hitting her head onto a concrete floor repeatedly. And when we asked what was going on there, he said, she was a bad woman. I had to punish her. And the question was, who decides whether she's a bad woman or not? He said, I do. So this conversation with the group about men deciding what a good woman is, what an acceptable partner is in this relationship, it's all through his eyes. He's the reference point. If she doesn't measure up, she gets punished. What do these conversations look like for those that are unfamiliar with what you refer to as the change process or this process of change that men undertake in programs? What does that look like for someone who wanted to peek in into a men's program? What would they be seeing? I would hope that along with a minimum of psychoeducation that these men would be getting, that they would be engaged in critical conversations about their belief systems about what their belief systems are doing to women and children in terms of long-term harm. I'd be looking at how those belief systems actually impact the men themselves over time. And so there will be very respectful conversations. We're not there to shame and blame men. We're not there to rub their noses in their bad behaviour. We're not there to rouse on them or shirt front them. That doesn't work in changing anyone. In fact, that's where men will dig their heels in and resist because I've made those mistakes over 25 years. I'm there to engage in a very reflective process with these men and to look at how these beliefs have developed, the harm that these beliefs are causing, and the process by which changing these beliefs will make them safer men, more responsible men, more reliable men, men who can be a resource for their children, not a risk, men who can be in a relationship without being dominating, intimidating, threatening, and trying to get them to see that they want an intimate relationship, but what they're doing is provoking what they most fear, and that's abandonment, rejection, a woman trying to escape from them. Mm -hmm. 
And when that happens, of course, that's when a lot of these men will escalate. And we know that when a woman is trying to escape from a violent relationship, separation does not equal safety. That's when her risk skyrockets. So that's why a lot of fatalities, a lot of serious assaults will happen around that separation time. The last fortnight has seen a spike in the number of women in Australia allegedly killed by men they knew. Skilled facilitators really have to pay attention to men's language in the group. They'll often say, oh, we had an argument or we had a disagreement or we had a conflict. I might have the police report in front of me and I'll see he's, he's strangled her, he's slapped her, he's pushed her downstairs and he's calling this a, a disagreement. He's calling this an argument. He's calling it some kind of, you know, a marital conflict. So he's not naming it. And so our job is to confront men in the group. I think there's three jobs facilitators have to have. It's a very delicate balance. I think we have to have compassion for the man, for the boy and the man who was traumatised and who had experienced men's violence as a boy. We have to collaborate with this man on moving him to a better man, those change processes which are going to mean that he will be safe around women and children, hopefully into the future. But then the third C is we have to actually confront him and challenge him about his behaviour respectfully, sensitively, and that can be done you know, by skilled facilitators in such a way that we show men or present to men the discrepancies in their stories. Mm. I'll have a man say to me, oh, she gives as good as she gets. And he might come in with scratches on his face and look what she's done to me. When we start to unpack that, we can see, and I'll say to men, you know, she gives as good as she gets. Really? Really, Dean? How tall are you? Oh, I'm six foot two. How much do you weigh, Dean? Oh, I'm about 100 kilos. Okay, what about your partner? Oh, she's... I'm using old language here. She's five foot three and about, you know, 60 kilos. Mm. What if she gave you her best shot, Dean? Oh, she might knock me back a pace or two, but then she knows she better start running because mm. I'm going to finish this. Well, what if you gave her your best shot, Dean? What would happen? I'd knock her out. I'd break a jaw. I'd put her in hospital. I'd kill her. So is that really an equal and level playing field, Dean? Can we call your behaviour towards her? and her behaviour towards you an equal situation. And obviously when they see it like that, every man in the group will say, no, no, it's not equal. There's power imbalance there. And, you know, we're focusing on the physicality of it here, but we know that domestic violence is far more than just the physical assaults. There's the coercive control, there's the threats, there's the gaslighting, there's the stalking and all those other aspects which make for an impossible life for a partner to lead with this man. When speaking about women, we often sometimes say, well, she know, really knows how to pick them, that she seems to be able to get into one relationship to the next and constantly have these relationships that don't work out or are marred by violence. For people that ask the question of, do women have particular characteristics that these men look for or are attracted to, how would you start to, to answer that question? I think that's a complex question and I'm not all over the research there, but what I have read, where men might have been victimised as boys, they get a role modelling of what a real man is in that relationship. A real man gets his own way. A real man is dominant, threatening, intimidating. A young girl seeing that, she grows up with a different learning, I think, that she sees women are abused, women who love 
these men intimidated. They have to accommodate these men, that they walk on eggshells around these men. This is what it means to be in an intimate relationship. Mm. So one thing I know that is a buffering factor is that if a girl grows up in a family where there's a very respectful relationship, where the father's reliable, responsible and safe, and where he values and respects the mother, then she's had a role model of a man in her life that she may look for in a relationship. Mm. That may not mean she always gets it because many of these men can be very manipulative and they can be charmers initially. And I used to say to these men, how many of you walked up to your partner when you first met her, slapped her in the face and said, you're coming to live with me, bitch? Mm. None of you. You were charming, you were you were flowers and chocolates, you would take her out, you were trying to hook her in to make a commitment to you. Then when that commitment may be made and that sense of ownership grows in you, that's when you start to reveal who you really are. And that's the dominator, the, the abuser, the coercive controller. So, you know, if these men say, I'm violent because I was traumatised by my father, then why aren't little girls who are traumatised by their fathers as abusive as men? So there's something more than trauma going on here. Mm. And it's that whole role modelling of what it means to be a man and the you know belief system around entitlement, privilege and, and domination that real men are supposed to have over women and children, I think. Can you speak a little bit about the difference between men's use of violence and women's use of violence? Yes, I can, because it's a backlash that I think we have to deal with now because the coronial report from, I think it was 2017-18, from the Fatality Review Committee in Queensland, where they report on the fatalities during that year. They've been doing this since 2015-16. And I think it should be compulsory reading for anyone who works in the sector because they identified that year there were eight Indigenous women who were murdered by their partners in Queensland out of the 25 or so women who'd been killed. Now, eight of those Indigenous women had been identified as respondents or perpetrators or co-respondents with, with their partners. Each of those women had been hospitalised with domestic violence. Each of those women ended up dead None of the perpetrators had been hospitalised. So from reading that report, there was a misidentification of women's violence in that context. Mm. And these women were further abused by the system, identifying them as respondents mm. of domestic violence. And each of those women were murdered. So to me, that just shouts out to us as a system the danger of misidentifying and misunderstanding women's use of force or women's use of violence. I've found that when men use violence, that they want to pull a woman in and push her down, subjugate her, suppress her. When a woman uses violence, she's pushing away. She's trying to get away. Mm. I could talk about some you know, horrific acts of violence that women have committed, all in the context of self-defense and trying to escape from this man's life-threatening violence. My experience of seeing women be violent has been it's self-defense, it's resistant, it's reactive. It might be preemptive that they might go down, but they'll get the first shot in. If a woman's been with a series of violent men, I mean, 
How could you blame her? Some really great key words there, such as really simplified in that the intention of the violence is very different. One is to pull in, other one to push away. And I think that really speaks to the motivation of violence and really where we need to start to understand women who may be identified as respondents in their relationships. Really, what is the intention of the behaviour? And usually what we start to see is, is people will say, you know, she is crazy. She keeps going back to this relationship. She threw the first punch. She preempted it. She started it, this sort of stuff. And really what we start to see is that women who appear crazy on the surface as survivors, they're actually not crazy. They're really unsafe in their relationships. Absolutely. And, and we certainly know from the research that living with an abusive, violent man is certainly going to affect a woman's mental health. You know, a lot of the men, when they come into a group, they want to talk about the incident. They're very incident focused. And they might say, I was only violent twice last year. And they want a pat on the back, you know. Mm -hmm. They don't understand or, or they don't want us to realise, I think. I think it's more about wanting us to collude with them, that he may have only been physically violent or sexually violent to that woman twice that year, maybe. We're only getting his side of the story here. But the reality that we're trying to get these men to understand is that once you are violent once in a relationship, that relationship has changed forever. It's the whole environment and atmosphere around those incidents which is there. And that's his belief system hasn't changed. His attitude hasn't changed. His coercive control hasn't changed. His making of the rules and enforcing the rules hasn't changed. His intimidation and fear factor hasn't changed. So, you know, the violence is there 24-7, 365. It's not just incident-based. And I think that's what a lot of people see and understand. And that's why our court system is trying to catch up with this, that we're dealing here with a pattern of behaviour, not a single incident here or there. And, you know, with the coercive control legislation coming into Queensland, that's going to be, I think, a focus of that in courts, police, everyone who works in this space and the public generally, that domestic violence is not an incident here or there. It's an actual dynamic over time, a pattern over time. How does that shape your guess your conversations with men in the room who refer to saying you know it's only been one incident I've only been arrested once it was a misunderstanding I was intoxicated I was angry whatever it might have been how do you get them to see that it's actually contextual to your entire relationship mm. when I hear a man use words like anger we will always have discussions in the group and one of the conversations we have is, gee, anger's a, a human emotion. Nobody gets through life without getting angry. But what's the difference between anger and abuse? Anger's an emotion or a feeling, whereas abuse is behaviour. Mm. When they conflate or confuse anger and abuse, it's a way of excusing their violence, mm. I think. And the same with drugs or alcohol. You know, in Australian society, alcohol is fairly prevalent. I don't know about you, Dean, you're probably a lot cleaner living than I am, but there have been times in my life, I'll admit it, that <laughs> I've probably had too much to drink on occasion, you know, with my Irish background, but I've never been violent. Mm. So we'll have conversations with men about, you know, well, gee, we know there are, there are cultures where alcohol is banned and yet there's still high rates of domestic violence. I've got friends who I would say or family members who are, have been or, or maybe still are alcoholic, but they're not violent. So, you know, if you say you're only violent when you drink, 
and you still choose to drink, you're still responsible for the violence. You can't exonerate yourself or excuse yourself. You get pulled up for drink driving by the police. You know, that the police aren't going to say, oh, you didn't realise you were speeding because you were drunk. Oh, we'll let you off because that's yeah. an excuse. Yeah. No, drinking or drugs aren't an excuse for wrong behaviour. So a lot of this group work is about challenging those excuses that men use. They don't want to be blamed and they don't want to take responsibility. In the group, we're working with those aspects of blame and responsibility. Personally, when I was facilitating men's program or interviewing men you know, as part of their pre-sentencing or, or their journey through the system, I always tried to do so as if the survivor was watching through a window, as if what would she want him to know about her experience or how would she want me to hold him accountable? In your experience or from your perspective, what would you be saying to them about the work with perpetrators? Well, firstly, similar to what you were saying, I would like to think that if we had one-way glass mirror right around the room that all the women and children of these men who had been victims of their violence, if they were looking at what we were doing, they would feel safer. They would feel freer from the violence. When I do training, I like to talk to facilitators about our first clients are the women and children of these men, not the men so much. So, you know, I can't rely or have 100% faith that these men will change. But I want these women to feel safer and less at risk because of the work we do in the program. The next client, I think, is the group itself. So there may be some men who are so counterproductive to that group, so sabotaging of the group, so difficult and disruptive possibly in that group that they're showing me and they're showing the rest of the group they're not ready for this process. Mm. So they might need some more individual counselling. They might need some case management. They need to have eyes on them. They need to be supervised and monitored, but they're actually bad for the group. So I might take them out of the group and work with those men who are going to work more, you know, enthusiastically, more realistically for change. So the individual man might come further down the track of, of who are the clients. And of course, our clients are our community too, because we want a safer community. And we're getting funded by the government to do this work. And ultimately, it's about keeping women and children safe. And if we keep women and children safe, we're going to have a safer community all around, I believe. You touched on having a co-facilitator there, and I'm assuming when you're facilitating that your co-facilitator would be a woman. How important is a woman's voice in that room where there might be 15 male participants and, and a male co-facilitator as the only woman in the room there? How important is she to the change process? Absolutely integral to the change process because not only as the woman's voice in the room, but when the male and female co-facilitators interact with each other and interact with their group, hopefully they're role modeling a respectful, responsible relationship between a male and a female. And it might be for some men in that group, the first time they've ever heard a male respectfully listening to a female. It might be the first time they've seen a, a female and a male having a disagreement over some point, but doing it respectfully. Mm. It might be the first time they see a male and female working professionally together for the good of men. I used to say to my first co-facilitator in America that it feels like sometimes when we come out of group, we're like the mum and dad these men maybe never had in terms of reparenting them about what's right, what's wrong, what's respectful, what's disrespectful. 
giving these men a real alternative and modelling that behaviour for them, I think is a powerful aspect of the male-female co-facilitation role within the group. I always listen out for the she should. Whenever I'm talking about something and there's a, you know, she should have just listened to me. If only she should have this. And behind each she should is a belief system there. And that really speaks to that victim perspective. Another exercise I've seen done in group and I've done myself is where we look at the costs and benefits of violence. And that's a tricky exercise because when you start to ask these men, what are the benefits of your being violent? They will fill up whiteboard after whiteboard of the benefits because it's getting what they want, how they want, when they want. It's all about prioritising their needs. When we talk about the the costs of their violence, it's a, it's a far less populated whiteboard. It's, yeah, I might not see the kids or, or she might leave me or, you know, there's enormous benefits to men's violence. There's a lot of kickback and payback for being a violent perpetrator in a relationship. You're the top dog. You're the person who calls the shots. Your needs are met all the time. That's where it becomes very intoxicating, I think. When there is so many pros to their choices to use violence, how does a man make a decision to stop being violent? Well, I think, you know, we were talking about having these critical conversations with men in these groups and one of the conversations or really the the subtext beneath all these conversations is reconstructing his sense of who he is as a man, developing a new worldview, a new belief system about who he is as a man and what is a man, separating violence from masculinity. We do an exercise in the group where I was working and it's about looking at the effects of violence on children. Most men in groups have children. I would say between 60, 75% of men in the group have children. There may be some who don't. So we always get them to go back to when they were children, these men who don't have children, generally younger men. Mm. What was it like for you growing up with a violent father, with a man in the home who was abusive? We try to get them to tap into their own childhood experiences. So, you know, we'll get them to write on the board what it was like for them as children to go back and remember that. There's a litany of horror, really, when you look at what they went through as Mm. kids. And it's very, very sad to think that these men who we have now in the group have had these horrible experiences with the men in their lives in the past. And then, though, to bring it into the future and what are the experiences their children are having now. So, you know, what are their children saying about these men as fathers? Mm. That's a very solemn and sombre session generally because men, you know, like to see themselves as good fathers And when we have this conversation, the penny can drop that you can't call yourself a good father if you're abusing your children's mothers. That's impossible. So their belief system that they're good dads is challenged very, very strongly in that session. That's when I've seen some men especially start to think seriously about who they are as men, who they want to be as dads, how they want to be remembered by their children, how they want their children to feel around them, you know. Mm. And I remember we have played tape, and it's called the Lisa tape. Mm. It's of a little girl, a six-year-old girl, ringing up 911 because a mum's ex-boyfriend has come around to the house intoxicated and he's trying to take the mum's baby out of the mother's arms. And this little girl is freaking out. She's so distressed. 
what makes it so difficult is that you don't want any six-year-old in the yeah. world to ever have to have a conversation like this with a, you know, a police call in for service. Standing We set it up, we tell the men, this is not easy to listen to because this little girl is very distressed, but we want you to understand the effect of a man's violence has on a child. We had a big man in group. I remember him well, he was florid. He was always furrow-browed. He just looked an angry, angry, aggressive man. And he said, I've got a six-year-old daughter. I don't want to sit and listen to this. Mm. And we said to him, you're a grown man. You can make your own decisions. You're free to leave the room if you find this too difficult to listen to. But before you leave, just ask yourself the question, did you give your six-year-old daughter... I always tear up at this. Did you give your six-year-old daughter permission to leave the house, to leave the room when you abused her mother? And he just shook his head no. And he sat down and he stayed. And that man started to change after after that session. He, he became softer, you know, just the way that you looked at him. He was less angry. He was more receptive. He was more open to the change process. So I think, you know, that's a powerful session for a lot of men when you start to talk about the harm to children that their violence is causing. For people that might be present at a barbecue or a community setting where they see someone who's you know, perpetrating violence, whether it be financial control all the way to physical violence, how do they hold their friends, their colleagues, their family members accountable for their behaviour? What do those conversations look like from a community perspective? That's difficult because when you're dealing with certainly very high-risk men, there may be this camouflage and cover-up. It may not be apparent immediately to those in the vicinity from the outside, this might look like a really respectful relationship. And, you know, as I often say, that domestic violence isn't a spectator sport. A lot of this happens behind closed doors. It's out of the eyes and ears of often family and often neighbours. How do we, as bystanders or people who know something's going on here, behave in such a way as we're trying to hold that man accountable and keep that woman safe? without endangering our own lives, I guess. We should be calling police. We should be, if this man is a friend or a colleague or someone we work with, we shouldn't be colluding by turning a blind eye or pretending that nothing's happening or it's not my business, I don't want to get involved here. I think, you know, we have to speak up, especially men mm. have to speak up and say, not okay, mate, not okay. Yeah. This is not good for your family. It's not good for your children. It's not good for your partner. And it's not good for you. And maybe giving men some alternatives to who they can call mm. about getting 
support. But, you know, I've been in forums where I've heard men say, oh, it takes a lot of courage to confront another man. I disagree. I think the real courage is where a woman is surviving in a domestic violence situation. What neuroscience has shown us about behaviour change work is that a shamed brain doesn't learn. So it's not saying what no. you're doing is wrong and you need to stop this. It's really asking the question of, you know, does this serve you? Does mm. believing this serve you? Mm. Does what you're doing create an environment where if your children walk past, they'd be proud to talk about you as their father? Yeah. Is this behaviour serving you? Yeah. yeah, and, you know, what we can do as men, and this is what we do in group facilitation work, is stop the externalising, stop the pointing fingers, stop the looking at the courts and at the police and at her and, you know, your family of origin and everything else out there. Start to turn your gaze inwards, mm. examine yourself, reflect on yourself, become aware of yourself. Mm. And that's what this group is about. And we're going to help you do this for the next 16, mm. 26 weeks or however long the group is. And when we were talking before about the group work, you mentioned that a lot of the men have that moment where they say, crap, I'm my dad. or I'm doing stuff that my dad did. What are the men in group think about their mothers in that role as when they grew up in a home that was unsafe, that was you know unstable and, and, and has had all these profound effects on them. What do they think of their mothers in, in that situation? Well, you know, different men would have different thoughts about their mothers, but I think what a lot of men have is conflictual thoughts about their mothers. Like I've had men who said when they were five, six, seven, they tried to intervene and stop their dads assaulting their mothers. So this little boy trying to protect his mother. But then the role modelling they're seeing is that men abuse women to get what they want, that women are to be abused, that men get their privileges and their entitlements from women. So there's that conflict about wanting to protect mum, but then having the message come through the situation and the experience of looking at this horror story that this is what men do and this is what women should do mm. and this is how men get what they want. So, you know, I've had a 50-year-old man in group who loved his mum, who he was living with at this time, but who was actually in the group for throwing a boiling kettle of water at his mother. So there's that sort of strange dynamic and this conflicted feeling. Perpetrators are so dangerous mm. because they build outposts in other people's heads. So a little five-year-old boy, he's getting an outpost built in his head by his father or you know the mother's live-in boyfriend or whoever that male abusive male is there with the script that this is how males are males and this is how women or females are females. And we're trying to dismantle that outpost in this man's head and, you know, have a, a far healthier understanding of relationships, of what a man is, what a woman is, what a relationship is, and really a worldview that's one of health and well-being respect for someone particularly i would say a man listening to this who may be using violence in his relationship and that he may be expressing he might hold those beliefs around what he expects in the home and he may be seeing that he's using violence that his partner is scared of him the children are scared of him that he's being potentially charged or even not charged for it if a person who is using violence was listening to this podcast what message would you want to give that man who's, who's hearing this Firstly, I don't think he's going to be overly empathic towards his 
partner and his children, sadly. But I would hope he's going to be at least self-focused to know that he can live a better life, that he can be a better man, a better version of himself. And that hopefully over time will have healthy effects and safe effects on his partner and children. But I would want him to sit down and rather than blame the world, rather than blame the police, rather than blame her, to just stop all that blame and to sit with himself and ask himself the question, what if I believe differently? What if I behave differently? How would my life, how would my family be better? And what would you tell them about their first night in group? that if they were potentially starting a group, they've enrolled, they've tried to get some help somewhere, what, I guess, tips or, or instructions would you give them about going to their first program? The majority of men I've worked with have been reasonably anxious about coming to a group of men. They think they're going to be shamed publicly in this space. They think that we're going to rub their noses in their awful, violent, coercive behaviour. You know, before I want a man in group, I want to meet him individually for a few sessions to explain the group process, to build a level of rapport. I know it's not like meeting with a voluntary client. The majority, well, all these men are involuntary, whether it's through court or through a social mandate. All the men I work with, none of them put their hand up and say, I need help. Mm -hmm. Three hardest words for men to say, I need help help. So I want to meet them, build up a level of rapport, let them know that I'm a respectful or the facilitators who they're meeting are respectful human beings. They're going to be listened to. They're going to be sensitively introduced to this space, which is a foreign space for the majority of men. So I'll say to them, look, we don't expect you to be overly talkative. You can sit back and just listen. You might feel confident to answer a question or ask a question. But certainly by week three or four, we want to start to see more level of engagement. I've had men in individual interviews say, look, Brian, I'm scared. I don't want to go into group. I know I've done bad things, but I don't want to go in there and talk about that in front of other groups. I'm not as bad as some of these guys. I know that. And I'll say, just come in. No man has probably said to you at the end of the program, I love your facilitation and you're brilliant, but I think you are. And I will say that publicly that I'm, I'm happy to have you here today. I've learned so much from you, a real idol in this space. And thank you so much for, for the work that you do. And that comes from the young boys that transition into young men or the or children that are living in these homes. Women and, and children have been safer for the work that you do. And I, I really thank you for that. Thanks, Dean. I appreciate speaking with you and I appreciate the insightful questions and points you made. Or someone you know is experiencing domestic and family violence, please start the conversation, reach out for support or report to police. Head to our show notes for contact details and service support.